Well, let's, uh, let's turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, let me bring us up to speed. Last week we looked at Ruth chapter 1. We said you can't read the book of Ruth in one setting. or I mean, you can't read it in four settings. It's a very difficult book to preach through because it's meant to be read in one setting. It's only four chapters long. The text is so pithy, so brief that not a word is wasted in the whole story. It's one of the most beautiful stories, not just in all of scripture, but in all of literature. A story both of God's working, his redemption through real people in real times, real places, but also a love story. A story that's set in different acts in different places. We find it beginning in Bethlehem, the city or the, uh, the city that is named House of Bread. And the irony of the situation is that there is no bread in the House of Bread. We talked about how that is a picture of how God is absent in a place because in the temple or in the tabernacle, some of the things that were set out depicted that God was in the house. Somebody was in the house. There was wine set there and there was freshly baked bread in the house. And you don't come to a house that's vacant for years or even weeks and find bread, fresh bread. But in God's house, there was always bread. It was a sign of his presence. And now in the house of bread, Bethlehem, there's no, there's no bread. And what it means is that in the time of the judges, when everybody was doing right in his own eyes, God was absent. God was absent in the place that he had made to be his place. His people were called to live in this place, not just called, but God himself took them to this place and gave them promises. And of course, God is never completely absent. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But when these people's actions, when our own actions become so horrendous that we neglect God in all of our thoughts and mind and, and our actions, we experience an absence of God by our own doing. And that's the condition that Bethlehem found itself in. And so Naomi and her husband Elimelech travel with their two sons to the country of Moab, the place that is not Israel. It's not the place of God. It's not the promised land in order to find bread. And we said last week, we can't fault them necessarily for many people throughout, throughout redemptive history sought uh, resources, food in times of famine in places outside. It was, uh, it was something that was done, but not everybody did it because this week we find Naomi and Ruth This week we find Naomi and Ruth returning to Bethlehem and many people are still there. So not everybody left town 
and not everybody died. And I didn't point this out last week, but it's important to point out that we don't necessarily know whether Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons leaving was entirely a necessary act, a necessary thing. Was there an element of faithlessness in that whole action? And there seems to be that going on. They move, the two sons take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth returns with Naomi saying, I will stay with you in that beautiful uh, passage there in verses 16 and 17. Wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you do, I will do. Your God will be my God. Let nothing but death itself separate us. Ruth and Naomi return after 10 years destitute. Naomi says, call me Mara. For where Naomi meant pleasant, Mara means bitter, saying the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. They're now in the place of Bethlehem. And we pick up the story. I'm going to begin with verse 22 of chapter 1, just last, last verse. And we're going to read through like we did last week, kind of a paragraph or a paragraph or two at a time, and then look at the implications of it. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him. In whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Lord, be, the Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Let's pause there. I read earlier from Leviticus chapter 9, the commandments, the reiteration of the commandments. It's a summary form and it adds certain things to it and takes, doesn't list out all the commandments in their entirety. But did you notice verses, uh, the verses, sorry, I don't have them here. The verses that spoke specifically to what they were to do when they gathered their harvest, not in the original Ten Commandments. It said, when you gather your harvest, don't gather right up to the edges of the field. And the things that fall on the ground as you're doing, as you're gathering it, don't pick those up either. 
Rather, leave those things for whom? Remember, it was was actually for two people. First one is for the poor, and I think most people who are familiar with the Bible Most people who are familiar with the Bible are familiar with this story of gleaning, the, pro- the concept of gleaning from the fields for the poor. We leave a margin, or that God commanded the people to leave a margin on the edges of their fields so that the poor could come and gather for themselves. It's a great principle for our lives. And the question that many of us have to ask, very applicable kind of question is, in our lives that are filled with busyness, Filled with things, do we leave enough margin in our physical possessions, in our giving, our generosity, but also in our time to be able to respond when a need arises? Our call as individuals who are in the church, and even as individual churches or even denominations, is not to solve all of the problems of poverty in the world. Oftentimes we hear people with the goal of alleviating poverty, and God says, the poor you will always have with you, reminding us that we are ultimately incapable in our limited abilities to solve all the problems of poverty in the world. But Jesus presses into this question very clearly. He presses into this question very clearly on multiple occasions with his disciples. When they ask, how should we feed this crowd? He says, you feed them. Don't send them away. You feed them. When the question of who's my neighbor is asked, Jesus says, well, the, the priest, the Levi, pass by on the road, but it's the Samaritan that stops to help and gives their time and their effort and even risks getting themselves ceremonially unclean. The question of gleaning is a helpful question to us as followers of Christ of do we leave margins in our lives to be able to respond when we see somebody stranded on the side of the road? When we see somebody who's in need near us or we get that late night phone call needing help from somebody around us. I'm glad to do it as a pastor, but so much more beautiful is it when the congregation as a whole, the people are surrounding each other with this type of love and able to respond to those things. Air traffic is up for the Thanksgiving holiday, as you can tell. But did you pick up the the second part of why the people were to the harvesters were to leave a little bit on the on the roadside? It's easy to read past. Anybody hear it? It's for the the poor among you and for the the sojourners. The poor and the sojourners. I don't think a lot of us think about this in terms of the sojourner. The sojourner was Ruth the Moabite. Somebody from a foreign country who's not of the people of God. You might have also picked up as we read the end of Leviticus or the the end of our reading there. 
the, the, the command that he gives, summarizing, that Jesus picks up on in quotes. He says, summarize the law, a, a, a lawyer says to Jesus, and Jesus says, you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor uh, of your people. But it's not just exclusive to a love for your people because the gleaning itself was for the sojourner, somebody who was traveling, even the foreigner, that when they would come in to a place, they would have the ability to, to travel through. Now, we've done a lot of travel recently. We've done a lot of outdoor travel. The hardest thing about outdoor travel is keeping food cold in a cooler, living out of a cooler, repacking it, dumping out the water, reloading the ice. Of course, there were no coolers or ice chests to take with them on the trip at this time. And so if somebody was traveling on a long journey, either they took money to buy food or if they were poor, they had to stop along the way and glean from the fields. The sojourner depended on the fields having an edge to them, a gleaning edge, so that their trip would be feasible for the people of God to be commanded to leave a gleaning edge on a field was to hang a sign on the door of Israel saying to the nations around, you are welcome to come into this place. Now that's a powerful sign, isn't it? When the tendency of most nations and most of us today is to hang a sign that the door says closed for business. We're taking care of our own here. The commandment that God gives to his people Israel is to hang a sign on the door that says you are welcome here. Now where does that apply? Later in the book of Galatians, Paul points out that the church is the Israel of God. And so the first application for this is in the church itself, that as a church, we need to be hanging a sign on the door. Not physically, but how we live our life. In that time, it was the gleaning of the left for the fields, the edges of the fields in our lives. It's through our actions and our margins, the ways that we show others that we have time for them that says you are welcome into the church. Those who are outside the church are welcome into the church. I couldn't do it this year, but one of the most beautiful ways, Thanksgiving is a beautiful time to invite others into your home, but all kinds of opportunities to show hospitality to those outside of the church, to experience the kindness of people in their homes, believers in their homes, of course, as a church, we do that and we try to do that, that people feel that welcomeness when they come into the church. And even while we're meeting outside here, that people feel an invitation that they can come and sit and listen or participate or, or enjoy some fellowship after the service, whatever it is. All kinds of ways that we can communicate to the poor and the sojourner that there's a welcomeness. Now, there's also an application for us as a, as a nation here 
as well. And on the heels of a political season, and especially the last four years where immigration has been such a hot button issue, I really don't want to get too far into the immigration question. The things that we can agree on is that we can't, uh, as, a, as a country, accommodate every immigrant. All of us agree on, on the need to have limitations, but we all also need to agree as Christians that a heart of willingness to welcome in those who are in difficulty, those who are being persecuted for their faith oftentimes, those who are experiencing some type of difficulty needs to be at our heart. We need to be asking the question, how can we welcome these people in and do it well? Let's continue reading in the story. Verse 8 says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have commanded me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. I want us to see two things from this section of the story. Boaz shows a generosity that goes above and beyond what was called for. He had already left the edges of his field for the gleaning. But now he extends to Ruth the Moabitess an extra measure of generosity. He does this for a couple of reasons. And the first one's in verse 11, the second one's in verse 12. Verse 11, he points out a beauty that Ruth has in her that is easy to read over, but that's a picture of what we're called to do in loving and promoting beauty in the church and in the world around us. Ruth is obviously still a fairly young woman. We don't know exactly what age, but she's called a young woman here. 
Boaz, we find out later in the story, is a little bit older. He's responsible for this whole field. Perhaps Ruth was a beautiful young woman in appearance. The text really doesn't tell us that. It's interesting because in so many places in Scripture, we do find a description of physical beauty. It's never a bad thing. But sometimes that physical beauty gets people in trouble, like Abraham when he's afraid for his wife Sarah when they go into foreign lands. And Abraham not once but twice lies, saying, this is my sister. Because of her beauty, he was afraid that the ruler in the land would kill him and take her for his wife. A gross lack of faith on Abraham's part. Not commended, though Abraham is commended in many other places for his faith. That was not an example of it. So it's noticeable that Ruth isn't commended for her physical beauty, but what does Boaz commend her for? It's for her reputation. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. It may be cliche to point it out, but character far trumped physical beauty in Boaz's book. Boaz doesn't simply look on Ruth. He doesn't even know who she is. He has to ask somebody else who she is when he comes to the field and sees her. But her reputation preceded her. Boaz knew of Ruth's beauty before he even met her. Maybe it's love at first sight, but not love that was unknowing of the character of this woman. It's a beautiful picture of Boaz recognizing where true beauty lies and seeing the sacrifice that Ruth had made, leaving her own well-being and her own security and coming to look after and provide for her mother-in-law whom she loves dearly, who is traveling back to a land where she doesn't know if she will be received back. And there was reason for being fearful. All that language earlier that we read about the men being charged by Boaz not to touch Ruth and staying close to the women. And we're going to find as we read through the text more this week, next week, that the other fields were also places where there was great danger. Why? Because we read in Judges, it was a time when everyone was doing right in their own eyes, but also because the Moabites were, were despised in Israel. There was a deep prejudice against the Moabites, some of it justified for some of the things that they did, like child sacrifice. But some of it just prejudiced, not knowing who the person was or what they were made of. And so for a lot of the culture, they just knew that Ruth was a Moabite. And their assumptions colored everything else and probably would have presented opportunities for both violence and even kidnapping or other types of abuses of Ruth and even perhaps of Naomi for associating with Ruth. We're going to look second at that verse 12, but I'm going to wait for this plane to go over so it doesn't break up the point. 
Verse 12 says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Boaz is obviously a fairly wealthy landowner, having command over this field. But do you hear in that phrase the humility of Boaz to recognize that what he has isn't his to hoard, but is from the Lord and his to use for God's purposes? He says, you haven't come to my field for this. You've come to the Lord's field under whose wings you have come to take refuge. More than that, you've come to the Lord's country itself in Israel to find, to find the, true, the truth of the God who has provided for his people and called his people. Boaz is taking the glory away from himself, being really a savior figure in this whole story. And we're going to see that Ruth is presented as beautiful, but Boaz is presented as, as even surpassing Ruth in his generosity. And yet in this verse 12, Boaz takes the glory and he gives it to God. In a beautiful act of humility. And in doing that, he takes Ruth and he points her away from himself as her Savior and points her to God as, his, as her Savior. It's the God of Israel who has done this, who's provided all of these things. I want to make sure, he says to Ruth, that you understand this as well. What you have done in sacrificing your life and giving it up to seek after Naomi's well-being and, 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 and the God of her people, is going to be rewarded. Let's continue reading. Verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The story continues next week with an explanation of what this Redeemer is. And so we're going to just scratch the surface a little bit today to point us to the concept of the Redeemer, but then unfold it more next week. Also in Leviticus, 
we see this principle we talked about last week of the Leveret marriage. The Leveret marriage was a, a law that was instituted in Israel to provide for a widow, but also to provide for uh, a continuing of a line of a family who would care for the land. The land was distributed out among the peoples and even among the families in Israel. The command was to ensure that not just the widow was taken care of, because widows were taken care of by many other ways and many other forms, but to ensure that there was a descendant of the people of that land who could continue on the, the family name, the family tradition the, the, for the people. An interesting aside as we look at the season of Christmas, and you read through the genealogies of Jesus, one of the questions that oftentimes comes up that's really a stumbling block for a lot of uh, people who people who are not Christians is the question, well, the, the genealogies are two different genealogies. They seem not to align. It's, it's evidence that the Bible isn't, uh, isn't accurate. But the book of Ruth, one of the things it provides in this explanation of both leveret marriage and then the concept of the Redeemer is that oftentimes the family would, would survive by, uh, by a wife and a, a close relative continuing down the line. In other words, the genealogies sometimes get mixed up. It's not always just a clean line straight through the families. There's reason that genealogies can be different and, and, uh, and whatnot. That aside, back to the main point, the Leverett Law of Marriage said if a, a, a husband dies before he has any, uh, any children, the, the, the brother of that husband is to marry uh, the, the widow. And it continues on, continues on. And the story of Judah is a fascinating story, Judah and Tamar, that we'll look at next week. But that wasn't the only law to protect the family and to protect the, uh, the, the family, the, not just the land, but the people of the family. The other law that was similar was the idea of the kinsman redeemer. It's easy to point out in these laws how it seems like an ancient culture and it has no relevance for us today. And in one sense, there's no call for us to go back to practicing these laws. We live in a culture where the inheritance is passed, rightly so, to male or female. It can be passed to somebody of a, a family's choosing. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't command those things. But in the time when, when the Bible is being written and these stories are being presented, there weren't a lot of ways that people could be provided for. These laws were revolutionary for a lot of cultures. These laws showed a generosity and a caring and a valuing of both men and women in ways that were completely uh, foreign concepts to most of the people around. And these laws pointed us or pointed the people then, just as they point us now, to a radical provision from God that transcends our understanding and our ability to practice justice 
and generosity even in the time and place that we live. The kinsman redeemer was able to take on the property of another close relative if that relative had died. But in taking on the property of a close relative, they also took on any remaining uh, relations, people, servants. We'll see next week that one of the complications in this story is that Boaz is willing to redeem the land of Elimelech. But Ruth comes in with a package and Boaz is ready to accept that and obviously has romantic intent and is going to, uh, to marry her. But the curious thing is that there's another family member who's even closer who has that opportunity first, has that more than opportunity, more has that responsibility if he chooses. Now the Redeemer of course, in the book of, of, uh, of Ruth is a central theme that points us to the work that Jesus does on our behalf. That it, with a radical generosity that is foreign for the time when Jesus comes, it was just the right time, but still it was foreign for the time that Jesus comes, God himself takes on the form of a human being, not just for a time, but for the rest of eternity. Jesus takes on that human body, which he still has today in a resurrected body. So that he can reconcile us to God. So that he can, using language that is marketplace language, to redeem is to purchase, so that he can buy us with his own money, so that he can take his wealth and purchase us so that we can be part of him, not in a slave sense, but in a buying a person out of slavery and giving them their freedom sense. Jesus looks at us in the field gleaning as somebody who's both poor and a sojourner. And he says, who is that? But the difference between what Ruth experienced with Boaz and what we experience with God, this is an important point, I'm going to wait. The difference between Boaz and Ruth and God and, or Jesus and us is this Boaz is Boaz is familiar with Ruth's reputation. Her reputation preceded it. He says, who is that worthy woman out in the field whose reputation has already reached my ears? She needs to be cared for. Jesus looks on us before we're saved, before we're called to him. And he says... Who is that sinner who has done nothing to earn my salvation, but whom I am going to choose to love and make beautiful? 
And really it's easy to look at Ruth and Boaz as the heroes of that story, but Ruth and Boaz both needed the salvation as well. Boaz points to that in pointing to the glory to the Lord. But the good news of the gospel has to be preceded with the bad news of the gospel. The bad news of the gospel says that we're sinners and that we have done nothing to deserve to merit God's love for us. It's tough news to say and it's tough news to hear. But he doesn't offer that news. That probably just cut out, didn't it? Did it go off? I'm almost done. He doesn't offer that news without the good news of hope for the gospel, of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' redemption buys us out of our unworthiness and brings us to a point of beauty. It's a good place to stop. It was where I was planning to stop anyway. The, the uh, speaker is cut out. That's the gospel. We're going to look more at that concept of the Redeemer next week as the, the, the events play out in the story. Let's, uh, let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this day and for your provisions for it. That you have brought us into the house of bread, which is your house, and shown us that you are present. Father, thank you for this beautiful story of Ruth and of Boaz. It's a story of your love at work in our lives in human form. For Ruth, Ruth comes empty, but is made full. Naomi is rescued as well. May we know the depth of that salvation and the beauty of your redemption especially during this Advent season, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.